This is the Sport Market, featuring the bulls and bears of sport business from coast to coast. Here's your host, Tom Manette. It's always great stuff when we have the chance to have Hall of Famers on the Sport Market, and that's exactly what we have in the name of Tim Ryan. Another credential, another feather in his cap. It is his membership uh, bestowed this summer in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. We're joined here on the Sport Market by Tim Ryan, Canadian-born broadcaster who had quite the run, uh, albeit much of it, on someone else's nickel. Uh, The name of one of his uh, books, his most recent book. He joins us here to talk about the changing landscape of media broadcast, radio, television, you name it. Tim, first of all, we got such great response to you being on the show just a few years ago. Welcome back and congratulations because uh, the Boxing uh, Hall of Fame honors uh, pretty special when you consider uh, the landscape being a global audience of boxing. It, it, it really reflects that you made quite the mark uh, in the eyes of a lot of people. Well, thank you. I, I was certainly uh, uh, surprised <laughs> that I was uh, selected and, and, and inducted, um, and it was a, a treat for me at the ceremonies in upstate New York uh, to uh, see a lot of folks in the business, both boxers and people uh, in the uh, uh, you know the media side and the promotion side and so on that I had many of whom I hadn't seen in a number of years. So. Uh, I, I was very honored and, and flattered, actually, that uh, uh, you know my career, which with in boxing, kind of ended back. Uh, oh my God, now about uh, at least 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, there were those apparently who who still uh, remembered <laughs> my work in the business, and so I was very grateful. We're talking to Tim Ryan, recently enshrined in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, obviously uh, uh, yet another feather in a much storied career. You know, it's interesting. One of the things we talked about last time we had you on the sport market is that that's quite a combination of all the work that you did at the highest levels of, of Grand Slam tennis and all the work that you did in boxing. Uh, but, you know, uh, when you look at some of the slugfests that have happened on the tennis court, uh, it can be pretty intense. What brought you, in your view, to sports as varied as tennis and boxing and to have the opportunity to broadcast at the high, highest levels, not just nationally, not just continentally, but globally? Well, it was, uh, you know, I always say luck and timing has so much to do with careers and almost everything, but certainly does in the broadcasting business because there's so much fluctuation, the changes of rights holders, uh, the, the ratings of, of one sport going up or down. There are a lot of things that come into play and I, I just, I really do believe I was, you know, when lucky to be in the right place at the right time and, and had the, uh, you know, enough of the skills and I guess enough of convincing people that I did, even if I didn't, <laughs> to, to let me have a, have a chance at it. But the tennis, and you, you mentioned tennis and boxing in the, in the same sentence, and that's, that always reminds me of a chat I had with, uh, with John McEnroe, whom I was pleased to, to uh, see just recently at the... Um, labor cup over in in uh, vancouver but uh I, I got to work with john for a few years at uh, uh at my nbc time uh, at my cbs time pardon me 
um, and uh, a little bit on uh, cable at that time as well. And I, I recall it just struck me, having covered boxing at the same time, I said to John, you know, these sports are actually quite similar. And he kind of gave me that Mac and roll look. And, uh, you know, you can't be serious like of his. Uh, but then he, he quickly he got it and, and said, yes, you're, you're right. I said, it's mano a mano. And, and when you watch tennis players, especially uh, the top guys, and, and when he was, there's a presence that they make when they walk on the court to start the match. Um, that it may not be deliberately to intimidate the person on the other side of the net, uh, but in many times it can do so just by the reputation and the style of play and the attitude that they have uh, when they take the court. And I think that's also very true in boxing. You notice always uh, when they come into the ring and now they march them in with music and all kinds of frills that weren't in play years ago, but it's part of the show now. But when they come into the ring, uh, you can see that each one in a different way is trying to say, this is my ring. And that kind of mental dominance can indeed, in some cases and frequently, um, you know, winds up being the difference in what might otherwise be a good matchup. One is already kind of not scared the other guy to death, but has kind of said, you know, this is my territory and I'm going to win this fight to get you out of it. So I uh, and when John agreed with me once he once he kind of got my point, uh, he has used that uh, in conversations and even on the air since that time. You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned the Rod Laver Cup at Rogers Arena uh, in Vancouver just a couple of weeks ago. I had the chance that we were we were in the building together at that time. Uh, I was able to bring my uh, my daughter Alexa. Uh, I know you had the uh, the chance to be there and meet people that you, ha- you hadn't seen in a long time. But uh, the staging of that event was, in my opinion, so first class with the blue of uh, 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 Team uh, uh, Team Europe and the red of uh, uh, Team World. Uh, but to have John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg as the respective captains, the respective coaches uh, of those two teams, uh, you've got two of the most durable names in professional tennis history squaring off uh, all these years after those memorable Wimbledons, uh, albeit in a different format, but it, it, it really shows you the historical impact that names like McEnroe and Borg have made on tennis. No question. And, you know, they've become great friends. Um, uh, you know, they obviously they were combatants uh, during their time on, on tour and at the major events. Um, and the historic one at, at Wimbledon, particularly everybody who follows tennis and its history and knows that but they uh, after uh, their their competitive careers ended uh, they became uh, very good friends and stayed in touch over the years and it was a natural combination and i'm sure john had plenty of input with uh, tony godsick who, who was a, a, a former agent uh, who created the labor cup with roger federer as, as being his his prime client uh, that's how that all came together and they quickly enlisted uh, john and uh, and McEnroe, I'm sure, was was uh, played a role in saying, okay, we we should have Bjorn Borg as the uh, captain of the of Team Europe. And so this is uh, been going for several years, as you know, and they keep expanding it uh, each year, and and they move it around. Next year it's in Berlin, uh, and uh, I think it's a great event. 
they they like to think of it now as tennis's Ryder Cup, and they've used that uh, comparison in their promotion. Well, it doesn't have the history of the Ryder Cup as yet, but I think it, it may well uh, wind up being considered like that. You know, it's so interesting because as I listen to you speak and, and having been there myself at Rogers Arena for the Labor Cup, uh, you know, it's all about storytelling. Uh, it, it's it's all about history and, and eras. But here you've got Rod Laver being honored, obviously the event named after him from one generation uh, that really represented the, the beginning of the open era of tennis, uh, where the amateur designation went by the wayside and you had professional tennis with a capital P. Then, of course, Borg and McEnroe in, in, in their generation. And then uh, Roger Federer, uh, you know, arguably the most popular athlete on the planet, representing the more recent uh, big three, big four, uh, certainly now in retirement. But that event really pays homage to three different generations of uh, men's tennis, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, I, and I, I think that's the biggest part of its appeal, even more so than the Ryder Cup uh, golf, uh, because, you know, that's, those are all of the current athletes. Obviously, they are in, in the uh, Labor Cup as well. But that the, the heritage that McEnroe and Borg bring to it as captains, and that and the fact that Rod Labor's gratefully is still with us, and uh, uh, it would not surprise me at all to see uh, that he's there at Berlin next year. Uh, he just keeps going, and uh, I think that's you know part of the not just the charm but the success of the idea. Uh, and they you know they've now done very well with getting international media to cover it. You had the chance to give the keynote address just a couple of weeks ago at the BC Sport Hall of Fame's annual summit in Greater Victoria. Uh, you were speaking through the uh, reunion at the summit, the Council of Chairs dinner presented by the BC Sports Hall of Fame Foundation. Uh, certainly, uh, for any of our listeners, uh, a lot know that uh, I've got the privilege of being a member of the Board of Trustees. I'm serving as the chair of the BC Sports Hall of Fame that night. I asked you, uh, greatest athlete of all time, and after some deliberation and consideration, you went with Muhammad Ali in terms of his 360 degrees impact on the world around him. I want to get back to Ali in in just a moment, but among the generations of tennis that you broadcast uh, the Grand Slams at the the highest level, uh, who in your books was the greatest men's tennis player and who was the greatest female uh, tennis player uh, during your broadcast career? Well, uh, you know, look, uh, obviously that's kind of tough when you know that there's at least a handful uh, who, whom anybody could pick and, and, and they would all be worthy of it. Uh, I, I think I have to go in tennis. Uh, I would have to go with uh, Roger Federer. Um, and, you know, interestingly is enough is he's very much part of the Labor Cup because uh, Tony Godzik, who, you know, c- came up with the idea, um, it, you know, is, is, has been the agent for, for Roger for many years and still is even in his post-tennis career. Now he's effectively a businessman. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, I think Roger made such a huge impact when he came onto the uh, tennis scene and and so quickly uh, uh, he showed all of the great skills but combined with terrific personality and and uh, uh, you know a connection with the audiences all over the world and 
so I I kind of have to to uh, go with with Roger Federer from again that's in you know my lifetime and my career of covering uh, that sport um, and in in terms of the women I would probably go back a little farther I've said this about who are the two greatest athletes and you mentioned my my feelings about Muhammad Ali well on the distaff side uh, it's Billie Jean King for me and not just because she was a great player but like uh, and has a ton of titles but like Roger Federer she's had such a tremendous impact on the game particularly on the women's side of the sport uh, getting equal prize money at the U.S. Open was was really something that she accomplished virtually on her own. And uh, her, her spread of, of uh, building interest in, on the women's side of the sport, I think, is unmatched. And she's still doing it. She's so devoted to it. Bobby Riggs, <laughs> Bobby Riggs, uh, <laughs> Billie Jean King. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to imagine how much of a trailblazing event that was and what it wound up representing for women's tennis. Uh, we've, you know, heard, you know, the fact that the, there was an age disadvantage, of course, to, uh, uh, to Riggs, but boy, oh boy, that was a tipping point, not just for women's tennis, but the so-called battle of the sexes really was a tipping point for women's sport. And when you consider everything that's happened in the 80s, 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now into the 2020s, it's just incredible how far women's sport has become. And I think there's a lot of people, yourself included, uh, that wonder how far behind where we're at right now we would be were it not for Billie Jean King. Well, right, and and uh, certainly, um, you know, the Williams sisters are, are are very aware of that, and are among the first uh, answering that kind of a question, the, the credit they give to Billie Jean King. Now, if you can, there's a little background noise here. No problem. In harbor where I'm uh, I'm sitting, uh, an airplane, uh, Harbor Air taking off. Um, but you know, in any conversations about the history of the sport. Um, now that at, uh, essentially, even though uh, God bless Venus, she's still out there playing, pushing 40. Uh, but when any of the conversations with those two ladies, Billie Jean King's name is going to come into it every single time. And when, when they're asked about their, their career and, and what meant the most to them and so on and so forth. And uh, that, uh, I think, is more important, um, you know, a tribute uh, than mine is or anybody else's. But Billie Jean continues to uh, be such a, a force and a presence in in the in the uh, sport of tennis, and as you indicate, uh, and a tremendous uh, inspiration to uh, you know female athletes and all of the other sports, and it's helped to elevate the interest in all of those sports. More Tim Ryan next, including his take on the greatest athlete of all time. You're listening to a special edition of the Sport Market on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. Now more of the Sport Market, rating and debating the bulls and bears of sports business. We're talking to Tim Ryan, uh, the uh, legendary Canadian broadcaster uh, who spent obviously much of his career with the biggest uh, 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 television networks in the United States, never forgot his Canadian roots. We'll get into some of those Canadian roots now with Tim. And Tim, uh, you know, we're all sort of 
sons and daughters of our parents and our parents have you know tremendous influence on uh, on us uh, i would say that applies to obviously both your mom and your dad uh, to a lot of our listeners uh, your dad would still be remembered uh, as a member of the canadian football hall of fame founder of the winnipeg blue bombers back in the day what do you think that lineage did to sort of you grew up in a sports environment what did it do in terms of plotting the trajectory of your career as a television broadcaster? Well, yeah, all of, of what you just said to, with my dad's history, uh, yes, I, I grew up. I can remember things as a, as a youngster, probably seven, eight, nine years old when we were in Montreal, having uh, moved there after the war years and, and uh, the new owner of the new team at that time, the Montreal Alouettes, knowing my dad's success in Winnipeg with the three great Krep uh, wins, um, hired him to be the first GM of the Alouettes, and they promptly won a, a, a great cup. I think it was only three years later, two years later, in 1949. Uh, and I can remember as a child that uh, my dad even uh, gave me the, the chance once or twice to sit on the bench during home games <laughs> with the team. And, uh, of course, that was quite a thrill, and made an impact and and i can remember my mom invited a couple of the players uh, to dinner new ones who had just arrived from the u.s and and so i had these two hulking uh, football players sitting at uh, at the dinner table when i was probably seven years old and that was quite a thrill and so that that influence obviously was there oddly enough when i went off to college at, at notre dame that was my my dad's choice of a college i was looking at a journalism career and wanted to be in the newspaper business. And, and uh, when I was looking at good uh, uh, universities with, with those uh, offerings, uh, my dad, dad turned up and uh, to me and said, well, what about Notre Dame? And I said, well, what about it? <laughs> it's, it's not on my list, but I'm sure they have a program. I'll, I'll look it up. It was clear to me that he had become such a fan and because of the, you know, the whole football side of it, that, um, that he would have been thrilled uh, if I chose it. And uh, so I did, and I'm, I'm glad I, I did because that was the beginning of my broadcast career to the extent that I got onto the campus radio station with the, in the sports side of uh, calling uh, home games of the basketball team and the baseball team. We didn't go on the, on the road at all, but it was my first taste of, uh, you know, using a microphone covering a sports event but I, I was still a, um, planning on going into the journalism side I had a job waiting for me on the news side at the Toronto Star and I, I'm still a news junkie and uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do but when they uh, started CFTO in 1961 and I was graduating in 1960 from Notre Dame I thought well I might as well just send in a little tape here and see if there's any interest in you know might it maybe I'll get a job at at, uh, at CFTO. And so I, I did to shorten this narrative. And, and I, I called him, her Manning, who was then the, the managing editor at the Toronto star. And I, I apologized for changing my uh, career line, but uh, he was very gracious and said, well, you know, if it doesn't work out for you there, there's always a job at the star. And uh, I was grateful for that, but uh, uh, things turned out pretty well um, at starting at CFTO and onward ultimately to my uh, career primarily in the U.S. 
Well, a big part of that career was your start in the National Hockey League with none other than the Oakland Seals, the California Golden (laughs) Seals. Uh, That was quite the startup at a number of levels. Um, uh, Charlie O'Finley, of course, uh, uh, you know, involved just across the bay with the Oakland, uh, uh, the Oakland Athletics. But uh, the California Golden Seals, the Oakland Seals, uh, they didn't last a long time. But even to this day. Uh, they're one of the more popular vintage jerseys, uh, along with, I think, um, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the, the white skates and the gold skates from, from back in the day. But yeah, there was always well, a little bit, bit of a view to promotion, wasn't there? Well, fortunately, I, uh, I was gone from there before Mr. Finley decided on white skates. And I would, I would not have uh, been too thrilled at that notion, and none of the players were, I can assure you, because most of them were, had been on the teams that I covered in the very uh, first two years when they were the California Seals based in Oakland. And um, with the, the, the owners there um, and did their best to uh, create a, a climate that would uh, get us enough uh, people in the seats. Uh, I was the PR guy, and I was the radio broadcaster, and, um, and we just didn't accomplish that. And so when the team was sold uh, to uh, Charlie Finley, um, I was literally out of work with uh, three kids and one on the way <laughs> from my days in Toronto with my late wife, uh, Leona Muir, Lee, everybody called her. And uh, so uh, I was uh, literally spent a summer wondering, uh, you know, how I was going to manage <laughs> the rest of my life or at least that point in it. Uh, and was lucky enough to get a job in, in New York on the WPIX TV and move the family uh, to New York from Oakland. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another uh, uh, for me after that. But yes, the, the SEALs, in fact, years later, not so long ago, um, I say it was about, uh, oh, four years ago or so, um, we were still living in California. And I got a call saying there was going to be a reunion of the original uh, SEALs and a handful of players and and people from that era at a at a, um, a game in San Jose, and I was invited to uh, do that, and it was a treat. Burt Marshall, there's a name I'm sure you would remember, had been a great defenseman in the league, and he was one of a handful of players that came back for this. And the jerseys, they set up a table in the lobby on the way in after you entered the arena. Uh, your point's well taken. I hadn't even thought of that, frankly, but uh, he, they sold out. I mean, they had all kinds of old seal stuff including the you know the the era of uh, of the white skates i as i said i was glad i ducked that one <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes uh there there's still they, there still is uh, a uh a, you know a, a, for those historians of the sport um those those uh, seals uh you know programs and so on. i have a couple of the programs from from my two years there uh, that i keep and and somewhat revere <laughs> We're talking to Tim Ryan. We're uh, going retro to the earliest days of the National Hockey League in California, in Northern California. Uh, And it's interesting, just from a business of sport point of view, uh, obviously the sport market about the bulls and bears, a sport business, uh, you can make a case that two of the uh, most interesting jerseys, not necessarily the, the the biggest selling jerseys, 
come from Northern California. You had that original short run of the uh, uh, California Golden Seals, the the Oakland Seals, and then, of course, the San Jose Sharks uh, just down the uh, highway on the other side of the bay um, in, in San Jose, in, in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, they definitely have uh, one of the more impressive sales statistics over the course of their history. So two of the more interesting uh, stories when it comes to NHL hockey jerseys are both resident in California. When you look at where the NHL has come, uh, you know, with 32 teams and counting, big expansion success stories, Tim, in uh, uh, both Las Vegas and in Seattle. Uh, was that the future for the NHL that you envisioned when you were dealing with the struggling California Golden Seals back in the day? Well, no, I, I, I really, I, I don't think there was, that vision was, uh, was how it turned out um, at the time. I, I, I know that the original owners, the Van Gerbig brothers who were, uh, two very nice young men with a lot of money who, who bought the franchise when the league expanded from 6 to 12, and that's where I wound up, and that's kind of a separate story how that came around. But the, um, they, their view was that they bought what they got was the franchise territory for San Francisco. Well, there had been a minor league team there in the Western Hockey League, the old Western Hockey League, um, uh, for some time, and it had a loyal following of oh, probably 5,000 or so games were played in the old um, um, what was a rodeo <laughs> um, arena originally, uh, and it was not very good for hockey. But um, the plan was that the team would be in San Francisco as soon as that was possible for the Van Gerbig brothers to move across the uh, San Francisco Bay. Um, and, of course, none of that came to pass. But I think there at that time when, you, when it was just six teams added, the notion of, of uh, teams in all of those other cities in the West and the South, uh, Tom, because when, when we did the um, – well, I'll just finish that thought. I, I don't think that there, the thinking was that broad at that point for the league. When we were doing the NBC game in the week from 1972 to 75 – I worked with, with Ted Lindsay and Brian McFarlane on NBC. Uh, at that time, the reason that didn't work too well and only lasted three years was that the, the, uh, there weren't enough cities in the U.S. Uh, ready to watch uh, NHL hockey. It was sponsored totally by Chrysler on television, and uh, they, they just gave up after three years. Who would have thought that there would be teams in Atlanta and in Florida I mean, it just it was on nobody's radar, and the audiences weren't there at that time uh, to uh, to you know make a case for uh, the sponsors on on NBC at that time. Uh, so it took it took more time and more exposure in in a var- variety of ways uh, to to grow the interest in hockey and uh, other parts of the U.S. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing to me when I think back that. When, when I started over in Oakland, I mean, there were six teams and then they were going to 12 and four of them, you know, were going to be in, in, in the U.S. or four, four, pardon me, six of them were going to be in the U.S. And, and I was grateful to be offered uh, the job in four of them, <laughs> four of the six, and, and selected Oakland because I fell in love with the whole San Francisco Bay, California dreaming. 
We'll continue our chat with legendary Canadian broadcaster Tim Ryan. We'll reflect on his Canadian roots on this special edition of the Sport Market, where we're rating and debating the bulls and bears of sport business on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. This is the Sport Market, featuring the bulls and bears of sport business from coast to coast. Here's your host, Tom Manette. We're talking to Tim Ryan, of course, uh, now uh, uh, back in Canada, uh, in uh, Victoria. Uh, He's the author of On Someone Else's Nickel. Uh, He is one of the legendary Canadian broadcasters of the past half century, uh, certainly with all the top networks south of the border from his Canadian roots. Uh, Let's just go back, um, you know, in terms of some of your career highlights. Uh, uh, You you mentioned or we we sort of teased earlier that in your view, Muhammad Ali, uh, the greatest athlete of all time, uh, you definitely take a a very holistic definition of his impact at at, at all levels when you uh, when you um, describe his lasting legacy. Uh, just talk to us a little bit about your impressions of the mark that Muhammad Ali left, not just in boxing, but in sport and in human rights. Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, who's the greatest athlete uh, and why I come to Ali uh, is because if you're just going to talk about the skill in a particular sport, it's impossible to say who was the greatest. There's too many sports and there are too many superstars in all of those sports. I was looking at, when asked that question, I looked at the impact of an athlete who's had an impact outside of the arena. And uh, his, I think, was uh, so uh, immense, and his willingness to take chances with the things that he believed in and, and you know, wrongs that should be righted, uh, his stand on, on the Vietnam War, uh, cynics thought it was just because he didn't want to go. He was too afraid to go and, you know, become a, a soldier. And there was so much more to that for him. Uh, he became a, a Muslim at the time uh, in, in the U.S., where uh, that was not seen as uh, something that was a, a religious uh, choice. Uh, he was lumped in with, with lots of other, um, you know, uh, people who were associated not in, in something that was so... Um, righteous as somebody defining uh, a new religion for themselves. And his bravery and, and, and his stick-to-itiveness uh, and his willingness to, to literally travel the world, not so much preaching Islam. He, did, he didn't do that, but he was acknowledging that, you know, this, res- this respect that people had in other religions uh, should be the same for those who practice uh, Islam. And, and uh, I thought that he didn't need to do that. Uh, it, it was he was making tons of money. He was world famous as a as a boxer. He had this incredible personality, great sense of humor, and all of those things that that made him so attractive. Uh, so I thought this guy's an ambassador for all good things. And uh, you know he, he he had you know some marital issues and so on, and was he wasn't uh, uh, a saint in in, in any way. Now, but in, in the sense of being somebody who saw the larger picture and could have ignored the larger picture and just gone on to, you know, uh, show off himself, um, I thought, uh, this guy is something special. And, and in my mind, he's had more impact 
um, than any other single athlete has in many of the good causes uh, you know, of, of the world, needed in the world. Uh, before we let you close out with sort of your view of the media landscape, the broadcast landscape in 2023, especially from a from a fragmentation point of view, from a decentralization point of view, uh, you've mentioned Billie Jean King, you've uh, uh, mentioned uh, obviously Muhammad Ali, but when it comes to the biggest sports event that you've ever televised, that you've ever commentated uh, for on television. Is there a specific year of a specific event that stands out to you? Well, uh, when we go to television, uh, because the Ali Frazier fight was radio, and I was just dumb lucky to fall into that and got to call it. But the, um, and I was still quite young in the business then. Um, I think... Um, in terms of the television, the larger side side of my career, um, that I go beyond um, some of the great fights that I got to cover. Uh, Hagler Leonard would certainly be, you know, a candidate for uh, one of the biggest uh, oh sports sports events that I got to cover because that worldwide interest and as other big uh, boxing championships used to. Um, and but I'd have to I'd, I'd have to keep coming back. I. I think to um, one that's not so, uh, let's say, has the world-size audience except at Olympic time. Uh, and I've told this story several times of, uh, of uh, covering the first ever live coverage of a Alpine downhill event um, previous to uh, the Nagano Games in Japan. Um, everything has been on videotape and played, you know, the next day kind of thing. But the men's downhill that uh, that day that uh, we were doing was an historic event for broadcasters to be able to make the call. No, no chances to go back on tape and fix something you didn't get right on one of the turns on the course or something. Uh, you had to you had to get it right uh, in the manner of a minute or two that somebody comes down the course. And Hermann Meyer, uh, who was the Austrian favorite to win, had this unbelievable crash. Uh, and you know, we thought he had broken bones and was you know, done for the games and came back the next day and won uh, the Super G. Uh, uh, was quite the most memorable event for me, calling live Olympic big story uh, on uh, you know, nationwide television and, and other parts of the world where our feed went. We're talking to Tim Ryan for another couple of minutes here on this special edition of The Sport Market. Uh, Tim Ryan, of course, uh, author of On Someone Else's Nickel and uh, certainly one of the legendary Canadian-born broadcasters of our generation, uh, of the last uh, two generations, and a lot of people suggesting he's right up there in the all-time list of the last half century. Um, The business has changed so much since your early years in it and CFTO back in the day. Uh, your early years, uh, you know, calling NHL games in in Oakland. Uh, what is the headline when you compare where we're at in 2023 in terms of the broadcast landscape, technology, um, the so-called democratization of the media, uh, and when you compare it with your earliest days? What has changed the most, and what, if anything, has stayed the same? Well, uh, the athletes, uh, you know, of today are, are, are you know, as good as uh, or better in some cases. But that aspect of it 
has remained the same. There were great athletes in many sports around the world in those days, and there still are now and probably more of them. But what I, what I, I think looking at television primarily, um, what's kind of changed not for the better, in my view, is that while the technology allows for a lot more things that can be provided to the viewer watching sports events at home, um, the competition between the various purveyors of that, the networks um, in the U.S. And, and not so much so far in Canada, um, but uh, what's, what troubles me or bothers me, I guess is the real point, is that they've let technology and the, uh, the, the uh, use of all, all of the um, information that can be put up on the screen uh, becomes kind of a, a competition between the networks uh, and the and the, the viewers uh, have to suffer through a whole lot of information slapped up on the screen or talked about by the so-called expert commentators sitting next to the play-by-play people. Uh, I think there's just a lot of extraneous stuff that uh, is, it covers up the importance as to what's actually happening on the field of play at that time. So I I do get aggravated watching, uh, you know, the abuse of, of the technology and the research and the, the, the plethora of stats and things that, that are overtaking uh, the commentary. When you look at how uh, the business has grown in so many respects, including just the capacity for rights fees, I mean, uh, imagine back in the day talking about the National Football League with its national media uh, partnerships and rights deals totaling more than $11 billion U.S., people would have said, just there's no way. Just in the same way that we never imagined that athlete salaries could grow to the level that they that they have. Sure. Obviously, there's strength there. Content continues to be king. It's delivered in very, very different ways. But what concerns do you do you have for the future of sport television, the future of sport radio? Um, you know, given some of the trends of the last few years, and uh, what do you think will be its saving grace as one of the uh, longest-standing examples of reality television? Well, that's that's a, a really good question, and I, and I don't know that I'm the, the right one to be, uh, you know, to uh, provide answers for. I'm, I have I have fears for the, the for the the fact of of them becoming, as I say, overproduced. To put it in simple terms, uh, the the incomes are extraordinary. I'm happy for people to make that much money, but I I also kind of seems to me that there's it's totally out of balance as to what uh, other jobs in the world <laughs> uh, for for other very talented people in whatever their field is to be matched by what athletes can can pull in and and what the owners of these franchises uh, uh, you know take home uh, it's it's extraordinary um, I guess that's you know the the way of the world uh, I just uh, the sponsorships clearly there's so much competition that they're willing to pay these big bucks to uh, to uh, you know become advertisers with the to get the visibility. It is a tribute to the interest in in, in sports uh, of, of so many people around the world who who uh, love it and find it as a great diversion and so on. So there are upsides and downsides, but it's, my my view from a television commentary point of view is that there's just 
too much going on that's taking away from what's actually happening in front of you in the game. More Tim Ryan next on this special edition of the Sport Market on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. You're listening to the Sport Market on Sportsnet 650. We've got uh, Tim Ryan just for a double-barreled last question here on this special edition of the Sport Market. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a two-parter, and it's sort of a multi-generational question, Tim. Uh, I don't think I had the chance to ask you last time we had you on the sport market about the biggest influence in your career when you were growing up. What sportcaster was the one that made you say, hey, I want to do that or I want to be just like, like, like him? And then the second part of the question is, who do you believe are the best of the best in 2023, both as a female, uh, male, male broadcasters and female broadcasters? Well, let's go to part one of your, the first question. Uh, I, I've been asked that, um, you know, often over the years. And, and it, you know, it, it sounds a little bit, um, what's, uh, I, don't, I hesitate to be choosing the, the right or wrong term, but the, the fact was that I, I didn't. I listened obviously to lots of them, and there were far fewer because the whole game wasn't as big in terms of broadcasting radio or TV uh, when I started uh, back in you know in the uh, '60s. And uh, I didn't. There was not anybody out there who said, "Oh, I want to be like him." Um, I did think that some of the people on NFL uh, who were a little more understated was more of an appeal of style to me than uh, the more talkative ones, shall we say. And I'm talking about play-by-play people, not the, uh, not the expert analysts. Um, but I was more interested in being me, having chosen how I saw the job and, and thought it was best way to serve the public to the listener, if you will, a watcher. Um, and I, so I, I frankly can't name an idol, if you will, out there that – Oh, I want to be just like him. I admired many of them, and would somebody say, How, who, "What do you think of, uh, um, you know, so and so?" If I, you know, thought what I believed, I, I would say, "Yes, I, I agree with you. He or she is uh, excellent at what they do." And if it was somebody that I just couldn't bear to listen to, I would, <laughs> I would say that too. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to be my own self-built broadcaster in the form that I thought the viewer listener wanted to hear and not hear and and I that was my goal to, to find that that balance of uh, describing what's in front of you to help the person watching or listening at home uh, to uh, enjoy the you know the coverage of the game. Listen, we so appreciate uh, uh, everything. You've taken the time to be uh, with us here on this special edition of the Sport Market. Uh, Tim, can't wait to get you back on the show again real soon. Uh, but uh, thanks for taking us down memory lane. Well, John, thank you. And I, I, I'll, I'll mention one name, and only because I, I think I told you this, that uh, I've been invited to be on the, uh, on the um, NHL a traveling show that's going to be last year was in Owen Sound and it's going to be here in Victoria uh, in January and uh, I've been asked to be on a panel hosted by Ron McLean so I've, I've mentioned his name uh, deliberately because I've, owned, I've never met him I've watched him when I've been able to see 
uh, hockey coverage uh, when I was in the U.S. Where sometimes I could see it. And since I've been back in Canada, I, I see it here clearly. And um, I, would, I, I am so eager to meet Ron McLean because I have the highest regard for him. I think he is an absolute superstar in his role. So there I go. I've named one, and I look forward to meeting him in person. Well, all the best, and uh, right back at you. Thanks again for doing this. We've been talking to and listening to Tim Ryan. Uh, one of the legendary Canadian sportcasters of his or anyone's generation. And you've been listening to a special edition of The Sport Market on the Sportsnet Radio Network and on the Sport Market Radio Network.